Content warning. There is some material that is, perhaps, more graphic than the normal bad words. If your kids are listening it will likely be time for the talk. About sex. If you're a kid and you are listening then it must be assumed that you're engaging in civil disobedience as this episode has been marked as explicit. Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy, dad, generally bad, movie nerd. And I hope I didn't sound robotic when I said nerd. Turns out I always do that. (laughs) Not great. And we're going to be talking about a really interesting movie, I would say. I like the movie, just right off the bat. I really like this movie. I liked it the first time I saw it. I still like it. I love it, but there's a lot to it, a lot more than you would expect. And that movie is Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It's a lot about relationships. It's all about relationships. I wouldn't call it a rom-com. I wouldn't call it quite a raunch-com, but maybe an omcom, a format popularized by one Mr. Judd Apatow, who has a production company whose name I, I don't know off the top of my head right now. However, we are going to be going through all of that but I think that the, the relationship, a relationship, not the relationship, although maybe the relationship, a relationship metaphor of a river is kind of appropriate. Uh, so, you know, we could consider a relationship, a river, and the partners to be uh, components of this river, whether tributaries, tribute, tributaries, the contributing rivers, or the rocks in the river and you know over time the river can change the shape of a rock and and sometimes in this movie i think you'll so let me just backtrack on the river thing completely there's been some criticism leveraged and there's a a really brief and um what tom cruise might call glib in my opinion uh review on the guardian about this movie and it caught me off guard because of how strong it was it um kind of leveraged a claim of misogyny in this movie. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that, you know, in the case of 500 days of summer as well, but maybe more so unwarranted in this one, because 500 days of summer didn't necessarily do the greatest job of really portraying summer as a person. And you really only get that kind of at, at a montage at the the low point of the movie, almost the anticlimax, but in this movie, the personage who would probably be considered the most targeted of misogyny, the, the young pretty woman, uh, Sarah Marshall, titular character, Sarah Marshall, played by Kristen Bell, wonderfully, I might add, in first person explains and goes into her motivations, her decisions, her thought process, her feelings, and why she exercised her agency and essentially caused the inciting incident of the movie that causes our main character, Peter Bretter to subsequently attempt to forget Sarah Marshall. So I just off the bat, I think that that's not okay. I think that this movie does provide a better portrayal of female characters of relationships in general than most romantic comedies might. Uh, I mean, I don't know most totally most, but at least some, 
but there's a lot of, I got hit the mic arm. I'm just gesticulating. And, and this is audio medium only. I don't have to do shit. I don't have to move a goddamn muscle, but Hey, this is where we are. So, you know, we'll, we'll go into all that. So just, uh, hang out here. I, th- I think I'm going to roll the trailer. People do that, right? People roll the trailers in the podcast. So you just get the flavor for it. The reminder in case you don't quite remember the movie all that much. And then the auditory sensations really, uh, bring out, they mine the memories, right? Because our senses are better indicators of, of or locators of memory, especially scent. Scent is actually one of the strongest senses tied to memory. Because as DMA, direct memory access, it's very dangerous though. You don't smell something, you might get hacked. This isn't Ghost in the Shell, but I'll roll the thing. Hey, you got here fast. I got a surprise for you. Peter, as you know, I love you. Are you breaking up with me? Pete, are you, um... We're leading different lives. It's like you're standing on the dock and I'm in the lake. Sarah, I swear to God, I'll jump in the lake like a merman. Do you want to put some clothes on? Would you like to pick out the outfit that you break up with me in? Sexy crime fighter Sarah Marshall has been spotted cozying up to singer and notorious Lothario Aldis Snow. (laughs) She's dating somebody. And until I do the same thing, I'm going to feel like I want to die. Hi. 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 Do you mind not saying that? Do you want to gag me? Kind of, now. I had sex with this woman who I barely even know. I'm really scared that I have an STD, Doc. Peter, I'm a pediatrician. Have you noticed you're sitting on a fire truck? (laughs) Everywhere I look, I'm reminded of her. Why don't you go on a vacation? I could go to Hawaii. Welcome to Turtle Bay and enjoy your stay. Peter, what are you doing here? Came here to murder you. This is a disaster. Go someplace else. I'm not leaving here. It'll look like I'm running away. Wait, why are you whispering? You're not following him, are you? Get out of there. (coughs) Peter. You okay? That hurt, but I know Sarah, and I'm pretty sure I just ruined her day. (laughs) (laughs) Like to grab some dinner, please? Is your girlfriend joining you? No. Just by yourself? Yeah. Do you want, like, a magazine or something? It's going to be boring. I just would be so depressed. Oi, oi. Why don't you come over and sit with us? Did you see her boyfriend? He is ridiculous. I like her hair. I wonder if the carpet matches her pubes. This spray. Get out of your head. It's really nice out here. Are you going to jump or what? Come on, Peter. I can see your vagina from here. I'll jump. Universal Pictures presents. My homie over here on this honeymoon. Are you given to a hard and rough? The wife wants me to do certain things. No, no. God would not put a playground next to a sewage system. A comedy about getting left behind. You need to get back on that board. Oh, oh wow. You got coral on your leg. Can you get out of my leg, please, hotel man? You sound like you're from London. And coming up ahead. I think it's good you're getting out there. I think you need to move just a tiny bit further away from the microphone. No closer. Oh. Now a little further. Okay. Closer. And then. Oh, I know what you're doing. You (laughs) stop that. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's a great necklace, Liz. Did you have that a second ago? Oh, that's gross. And why is that trailer like three minutes long? Is it three minutes fully? Let me, uh. Let me double check that. I'm, I'm recording this. I don't actually have the trailer in front of me. That is a trick that I do. 
sometimes where I say things and then I input them later. Hey, podcasting magic. Uh, okay. Where is this? Uh, looking for it. I forgot where I put it. There it is in the folder called forgetting zero Marshall. Funny how that works. Uh, right click properties details. Yeah. Three minutes long. What the hell? Three minute long red band trailer. Ridiculous. You couldn't even see Jason Siegel's ass. This is a podcast. But hey, whatever, you know, uh, on, onward. Adelante, right? Okay, by the numbers, Sarah Marshall was released April 18th, 2008, on a 30 mil estimated budget, which is, hey, not bad for a movie filmed in Hawaii, which I imagine Hawaii has their own real film industry going like it's Hawaii. But it's also going to be more expensive than filming in L.A. It was filmed mostly on location in Hawaii. There was some stuff, you know, picked up or, you know, whatever in Los Angeles. Fine. No big deal. It made uh, opening box, opening weekend, uh, almost 18 million. Not bad. Not bad at all. So they're kind of coming up into the opening weekend being about half the budget. However... This one seems to have had a longer tail on it because it ended up going 63 million in the US and then 106 worldwide. I know that it's not going to translate well internationally per se. I feel like it's a very American comedy. I, a lot of American conventions, American uh, attitudes towards sex are either reinforced or subverted. You know, it's just a, a, a thing. And I think that most Apatow movies will fall into this range as well, right? Just kind of doing better domestically in general. A runtime of 118 minutes for the unrated version, which is the version that I believe that I saw. That's uh, it's basically the numbers. I mean, it's done gangbusters on DVD. I've heard of multiple people singing its praises. And to this day, like the movie still has a legacy. It still lives on. So doing well, making money for everybody. I think universal does really good Blu-ray releases. I'm going to say there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. That's really entertaining. Uh, some of the blooper reels and, and things like just, I was dying. I was, I was tears coming, rolling down my face. I was laughing so hard. There's a whole section on bloopers, I believe and a whole section on like alts and wild takes and things like that. And, and as well as deleted scenes and, uh, kind of a, a vlog uh, style thing. That was very cool. Thank you, Universal, for releasing good uh, Blu-rays, blue, good physical. So I guess I'm going inside baseball a little bit, playing some inside baseball, so to speak. Or it's a little inside baseball, inside baseball being not hitting big, uh, doing singles and bunts and steals and things. And generally being very detailed about the game of baseball versus just hitting home runs all the time. I mean, this movie is a home run. Not anyway. There is um there's a, a tendency to consider this a romantic comedy, but I am going to posit that it is not quite a romantic comedy, that it is a new breed of romantic comedy newer than even the raunch com the raunch the, the romantic comedy is uh you know uh people meet cute 
right? That, that's actually what it's called. It's called a meat cute. I don't know why it's called that. I also don't know why people have uh, started to use the word record instead of recording. Like on this record, I am rambling about words. Um, or yeah, that record was a good time. That was a very good record. Uh, that's a new thing now, right? Writers got to write their own shit. They got to figure themselves out. They have to, I guess, you know, market their brand. My brand. Uh, use your special eyes. So they would... Motherfucker, I forgot that watch was in here. Um, so they would meet cute. And uh, then, you know, there would be kind of a three-act structure where they... You know, will they, won't they, they will. And then, oh, they break up. And then, oh, they make up at the end. That's just... It's very standard romantic comedy, right? Rom-com. Then came the raunch-com. And the raunch-com kind of has a weird history. I think they started around the 70s. But, you know, there's some notables that you will remember there. Like, excuse me as I find my list. Like, uh, like. Like a glove. You know, traditional teen kind of raunchy comedies, uh, but also romantic comedies. It, it kind of, uh, you know, twists and turns, but you have things like Porky's and I thought I had other stuff in here. Oh, right. Um, okay, so, you know, that was a traditional rom-com. Then came the kind of teen coming-of-age raunch movie fest whatever you have so you have like porkies revenge of the nerds uh any of those kind of raunchy teen movies uh american pie even you know as as a as a newer one i really can't think of, of many others off the top of my head or, oh hollywood nights hollywood nights was fun but hollywood nights kind of bridges the gap a little bit because it's a little bit of a raunch com it's a raunchy romantic comedy tony dance's character and michelle pfeiffer's character if memory serves hollywood nights is a really really um Fun movie. I don't think it's a great movie. Uh, Frank Drescher's in it. Robert Wall. I love Robert Wall's performance in that movie. I love the cars, right? So if you listen to my episode on American Graffiti or Tulane Blacktop, I'm into the cars. Uh, Hollywood Nights hits the cars like real hard and with, um, you know, a bit better of a visual aesthetic uh, in terms of the mechanics of making the movie. And they used, uh, I believe it was a 57 Chevy that was uh, Project X from Hot Rod Magazine, the yellow one, if memory serves. Again, I haven't seen Hollywood Nights in, I don't know, 10 years, maybe. But yeah, I, oh, that Project X boy, I'll tell you what. So, um, you know, Animal House obviously was a, a very uh, kind of raunchy, bridging, bridging the gap kind of teen to whatever movie, even though it goes completely off the rails at the end and it's wonderful and I love Animal House. And uh, that also reminds me that I should eventually watch the, uh, the I think it's on Netflix, A Stupid and Futile Gesture, where um, <laughs> Joel McHale plays Chevy Chase in the uh, uh, gestational phase of National Lampoon. But I think the you know, probably the, the Farrelly brothers really nailed the raunch com with uh, There's Something About Mary. And Something About Mary is a, a fantastically popular movie and it is well-deserving of it because 
of so many reasons, but uh, it's very funny. I believe it was a Fairly Brothers movie. I'm not going to check that. I'm not going to fact check it. I'm just going to talk shit. Uh, Judd Apatow, really, uh, who had worked on a lot of things uh, prior to Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And if you don't know how he relates into this, if you look at like the front cover for Forgetting Sarah Marshall, it's like from the producer and stuff like that. It's really um, Apatow made this movie happen. It's not his movie. He didn't make it from the ground up. It's actually crafted uh, very lovingly by a small group of people of which I'm sure he had a part. And we'll talk about that, but he's a producer on this movie. It's still, it's very, very important to talk about Judd Apatow and his new style of romantic comedy that some people call the homcom, homcom, that's French, uh, so l'homme, par l'homme, you know, like a cologne. Um, so homcom is what some people call it, or, you know, the Apatow comedy, or dick flick. I've heard it called a dick flick as opposed to a chick flick. That's kind of weird. I'm not going to say anything about my dick. I came up with like three things that were all bad. So going to keep my dick out of this. But Apatow, um, Jet Apatow freaks and geeks. Uh, obviously the one that I've been, the, the one, the one that I've been dancing around, which is on the front of the cover. It says from the producer, the, from the director of the 40 year old virgin and knocked up comes, you know, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Right. So those were the two, very commercially successful movies, incredibly so, that launched uh, Seth Rogen, you know, uh, really provided a lot, a lot of opportunities for like Jay Baruchel, you know, and Jason Segel as well, right, who had a, a part in, he'd already worked with Jason Segel. He, he kind of found Jason Segel for, you know, Judd Apatow's seminal show, Freaks and Geeks, and there's a lot there that I'm not going to talk about, but if you want to check out a video essay on Freaks and Geeks, uh, I'll, I'll look for one and put the links in the show notes if I remember, but I'm sure there's a lot of good ones. However, Judd Apatow, staying on task. Boom. Judd Apatow has a bit of a formula for, um, for his movies sometimes. Uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing per se, uh, but his movies are, are kind of all like the kind of nerdy, dorky Jewish guy gets the girl and I... I feel like that's a little autobiographical uh, with his story. His wife is Leslie Mann, who is a very funny uh, and pretty woman, but incredibly funny woman. And they met in 95 and they've been married 20, however many years, maybe 30 at this point. I don't know. Um, I don't know how to do math. So 20, whatever years, because obviously it's not, not 2025 yet. So it'd be impossible. So 24 years, let's say, let's call it 25. Let's do a nice good number. That's his, his movie. That's his vibe. That's his whole like life in a lot of ways. In 95, he was just working on small things. He wasn't doing the big things that he does now. So it stands to reason that it's like not an autobiography, but like there's those hints of reality, that little touch of naturalism in his movies, which is kind of what he's characterized for. It's based on his experience. So it, it feels real. The, the nerdy guy and, and the nerdy main character isn't always a perfect and misunderstood like character. Sometimes the, the main character has some real deficiencies that they need to overcome. You know, and this can also apply to me. So, you know, maybe a lot of things that you can say about Judd Apatow or Judd Apatow's characters can apply to me 
except for how successful they are. Uh, being that Judd Apatow is much, much more successful. You know, and, and there's definitely some common themes in all this, but I don't, I don't know that Apatow fully categorizes them as themes. I've seen enough of his movies that I can say and shows and, and things that he's worked on. Because he's also a writer. Uh, he's not only a, a writer, but he's also a director and a producer. And I think that when Judd Apatow's name is on a product, on a on a show, on a movie, so to speak, even though the, the business is called the show, he uh, puts his mark on it, right? Not not me. I'm not his mark. Uh, he, he puts a stamp on it, like uh, not Terrence stamp. He puts his spin on it, right? I don't know anybody named Spin, so... I'm I'm out of, <laughs> uh, and and one of those things is is perhaps not common themes but common feelings. I think that these are very feeling oriented movies. These appetite movies, these humcoms, these dick flicks. Where, okay, let's just um, the, the you know they're really hitting target age groups of eighteen to thirty five. Like the male eighteen to thirty five demographic is targeted like a fucking missile. You know, all of these movies have just extremely been tailored to me. It, it is what it feels like. Um, you know, and, and I was listening to an interview at some point somewhere. I don't even remember which one. And he's like, I still feel like I'm 26, uh, even though he's, I guess, 50 now or something like that. I'm not going to look it up. Not going to check. And um, that's very, you know, uh, it's very relatable. I also feel like I'm still like, I don't know, 17 or 18, even though I'm not. And, and these are relatable things to this demographic. And there's always, um, you know, the movie always pivots around an emotional core of some way. And, and, and usually it involves heart and, and goodness, if not, you know, politeness per se. Um, but there's heart and there's realism, right? The characters aren't aren't exaggerated so so much. If um I know people who are like characters in Avatar movies, and if they weren't always like that, then the movies uh formed them that way. But they're still real people that I really know. I can go and see these people if it wasn't for, you know, COVID uh pandemic. But I interacted and lived in among these people and walked among these people for so many years uh, up until now. So it, it feels very normal, right? Very relatable. Like these are real. Another common uh, feeling or thing that Apatow goes for is an, an honesty, an openness, and a transparency, really. Uh, and this, this uh, manifests in going after some difficult and or awkward subjects, right? So the 40-year-old version has a lot to do with uh, really a, a delayed coming of age, you know, which coming of age is a really stressful part of uh, growing up. It's really tough. And in 40-year-old version, it's a delayed coming of age. So this is a man, and there's a lot of masculinity that's called into question here. And just sex and virginity, you know, like the scene where like you put in the pussy on a pedestal. That was amazing. And it was so awkward to have that talk. It was very, um, it was, it was very relatable, right? Uh, there's parenthood, there is fame, 
there is you know death and aging and there are relationships obviously forgetting Sarah Marshall is mostly focused on on that one and all of these things are in some type of of context of personal identity right so it's not just like this is a movie about fame and I'm, I'm thinking of funny people but how does this fame change me or or how does this fame affect my identity how does the this masculinity or lack thereof affect my identity how does the sex thereof or lack thereof affect my identity how does this relationship affect my identity is peter brighter's kind of struggle in forgetting sarah marshall and then in kind of going into these things there's an examination a little bit of the underlying psychology of the thing. And this is an approach that Jed Apatow came from in working with Gary Shandling, who was a good friend and a mentor to him. Jed Apatow was a, a stand-up writer and he was a stand-up comedian, but he was pr more prolifically a writer. He was more successful as a writer and he wrote for a lot of people and he knew a lot of people in stand-up. And that's where a lot of the material for funny people his movie comes from, which is very good. I really liked it a lot. But this, um, this it manifests itself in a lot of different and interesting ways. And there's one scene in particular in this movie, which Jason Siegel calls, I think, one of the most important or the most important scene. And it's the, the drunk dinner scene is also what he calls it. That's a big one. And... You can see this happening. I don't know how much of it came directly from Jason or Apatow or, or where the the two met and formed this better thing. But that dinner scene is what I'm talking about. In Apatow movies, you do get these kinds of scenes. And additionally, like the structure of the movie is oftentimes uh, akin to a stand-up set. It has, has movements and callbacks and, and things. And, you know, it's it's really great. So when you watch the movie, you can kind of feel it out a little better. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, maybe not quite as much as some of his other movies, but there's some really good callbacks in this one that are non-obvious per se. They're not like, oh, remember that joke? Somebody says, no, it's not that. But there are things that happen in the movie um, that are callbacks to previous moments in the movie. A lot of this could feel very contrived, but really the whole thing pivots around the emotional core and it's emotionally honest. People are not trying to be fake characters. I mean, are not trying to be fake. And there's a lot that goes into this, this style of his, right? And one of those things primarily is casting and Judd Apatow has, I would say that he has, a not a stable but a cohort maybe perhaps of this comedic school. And these are, this comes from freaks and geeks and freaks and geeks. He casted the actors that were not too dissimilar from the characters that they were playing. They were young, but he wanted that honesty. He didn't want, uh, an actor to boldly sing a, a love song. He wanted somebody to awkwardly sing a love song to another character. He has these actors that be, are exceptionally talented. If you look for the cast of Freaks and Geeks, you're just going to be like, holy shit. And in that is honesty. And, and uh, Gene McCarthy, I believe, has been a casting director 
that was the casting director for Sarah Marshall, and they they got some really really good casts in this one. But she has worked on a metric fuck ton of movies and is generally pretty badass. I'm not I don't know that much about casting directors. I've have zero auditions under my belt, so I can't uh, I can't really go into like the you know details the mechanics of this process per se. But the cast is really really good. It's really good, and there's one person in particular who I think wins the movie a little bit. Uh, I think somebody wins the movie, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Avatar also does a lot of improv and, and ad-libs, so there's a, a good amount of takes to choose from. This has been popularized now with um, Lord and Miller, uh, you know, and David Wayne, I'm sure, and all those people. David Wayne, who also worked with Avatar and Freaks and Geeks, and there's other people that I can't come up with their names right now, but the improv with the, the, the talented cast, they make it feel good. It's also, you know, they're not stretching so, so hard. A lot of times, a lot of these actors now, especially are more seasoned and they know kind of how to feel out their characters in a way that is not too much. So letting these actors really explore their characters uh, and even if the takes aren't used, I think that, and this is my armchair hot take, I think that letting actors have a little bit of space to run, to run, to work, that can set the stage for more organic things to come up. And, you know, again, we'll talk about that, but it's really good. I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I like that whole vibe. I like the idea of it. This, um, not democracy, but this collaboration, right? Because movies aren't a democracy. When you make a movie, you cannot, it cannot be a democracy. But the director primarily is the vision quest. The director is the one that sets the vision and has to kind of make that, to see it through. That's what they do. They direct. So, you know, collaboration. It's collaborative. Actors need to understand their character, where it's going. But in that, there is room to, you know, engage. So that gives them, you know, agency that, that empowers them to be the character and to make some choices. So, you know, improvisation ad libs very important to Apatow movies, but I think that, um, I don't know that it's so important, but it is definitely characteristic is a little bit of the, not a little bit, a, a decent amount, a healthy amount, uh, maybe an unhealthy amount. Uh, I don't know of the male perspective. Judd Apatow is Judd Apatow. He is himself, right? Knocked Up was basically the eraser head of our generation. You know, although eraser head is still eraser head for our generation. Uh, I guess I'm trying to make some wild ass analogies here, but it's definitely his perspective. He himself, right? As and I'm not doing a pronoun thing to be a jerk. I'm just, you know, kind of reinforcing the fact that it is a male perspective. Yes, but he is also a male, right? Identifies as male and while it is a male perspective, it is an unusual one. It is a more creative one, a, f a fresher, a more original one. And it, it, it touches kind of everything he does, except for perhaps girls he worked on notoriously. And I think a lot of really good stuff came from Apatow and girls. I think the whole breastfeeding thing came from him. So I wonder if over time he wanted to find different avenues other than his very... I, I think at some point you get bored of your own 
brand a little bit and you want to venture out of your comfort zone or not comfort zone, but you just kind of want to adventure out. And I think he's done that since, but this movie still very much lives in the Apatosphere, the Apatoverse. You know, so like I said, the marketing material heavily leaned on Apatow and, you know, his name was potentially bigger on the, on the movie poster than Jason Siegel, who was the, the writer of the movie as well as the lead actor. But he's a first time writer. Nick Stoller is the first time director who uh, has worked with Apatow from, I think, Undeclared. I think he was a writer on Undeclared. And um, Apatow really has become, based off the, the back of the financial success of Knocked Up and 40-Year-Old Virgin, Virgin, not Virgin, he's, he's kind of a juggernaut at this point. So to make a movie with a first-time writer and a first-time director, you need you need Apatow. Apatow's that people attached. And, you know, he's got, uh, I think, 71 producing credits now and really some wonderful comedies and dramedies, Sarah Marshall included, in there. And I think that's what it is. I think that when you have Apatow attached to your project, you're getting kind of his style and his, his things. And I, as I've said, you know, just now, like, I think that that, uh, as I've examined just now as I'm recording this, I think that that's broadened a little bit. And I think that that's interesting. I know that Funny People was a little bit of a game changer because it was more of a drama. It wasn't a straight comedy, even though it was very, very funny. It was more of a drama. So, you know, there's things. There's changes. But, you know, we, we can we can talk about Nick Stoller now, right? Nick Stoller, director, who was an accomplished comedy writer, right? Uh, Pre-Sarah Marshall, he wrote Fun with Dick and Jane and Yes Man. And then post-Sarah Marshall, he did uh, Get Him to the Greek, The Five-Year Engagement, Muppets Most Wanted, Sex Tape, Zoolander 2, uh, The Carmichael Show, Friends from College, uh, which Friends from College had a, a strong How I Met Your Mother vibe to me, but uh, I believe he was the creator of that show as well, potentially. I don't remember off the top of my head, but he directed all the episodes. He also wrote uh, Friends from College, and then he wrote Door on the Lost City of Gold, which seemed like a Dora the Explorer movie that maybe had some good jokes for the parents. I never saw it. And uh, he also wrote Night School. Then he went on to direct Get Into the Greek, The Five-Year Engagement, Neighbors, Neighbors 2, both very funny, and Friends from College, which I just mentioned. And he's raised in Miami, so he's my boy. Uh, we're, we're basically neighbors, too. Nick Stoller does a, a very competent job, I would say. I don't think that there's anything terribly revolutionary in this movie. I think that there is a good crew that really props up the fact that this is a comedy. And that comes from uh, Russell T. Alsobrook. It's actually Russ T. Alsobrook. I may have said his name wrong. But Russell T. Alsobrook. His name is Russ. Is the director of photography. He worked with Apatow on Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, Superbad. He also worked on Role Models, uh, notoriously on New Girl, which New Girl is probably one of the better comedies of the past 10 years, maybe. And Blockers, which is also a very, very funny movie. And Russell T. Alsobrook Russ. is a very well-traveled comedy DP, as opposed to, you know, what uh, Todd Phillips and Larry, um, Larry, what's his name? The, 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 the cinematographer for uh, Todd Phillips, that he actually did The Joker, which I thought The Joker was a beautiful, a beautifully shot movie. It was unexpected that the guy that did The Hangover was the DP there, but 
this movie is pretty easy to read. The struggle, you know, isn't in deciphering the symbolism all the time or anything like that, but being representative in service of the story, it's a brighter image, almost TV-like, which, uh, you know, if you look at, if you think about New Girl, it's uh, it's got an interesting color palette. And shooting in Hawaii, there are challenges. There are some scenes that are just impossible to shoot because the sun is so contrasty. So some of them end up a little flat like they did in in the Sandlot. Uh, if you listen to that episode, uh, whenever that was, I don't even remember. Time is a flat circle. But in shooting in bright, bright, bright sun on film, this, this movie was shot on 35 millimeter. So there is the potential for any kind of color grading techniques to end up with a flatter image because you're trying to kill some of that contrast. And I don't know how much that played into his experience played into the look of the movie, but as, as Nick Stoller was a first time director, I'm going to say it was more than a little bit. I'm going to guess it was more than a, a little bit, right? You're going to lean on your department heads, right? Your photography head, Russell, Russ, not Russell, who's worked on a million things and is like proven. He's proven. He's, he's, he's solid. He's a solid guy. You got to help. You got to get him to help you out. You know, uh, William Kerr also was the editor on this movie and William Kerr, another well-traveled comedy editor. So we have Tommy boy, undercover brother, uh, and then later I love you, man, get him to the Greek bridesmaids, five-year engagement and super bad, right? Well, previously super bad, I guess. Or was super bad after forget. I don't know. However, it um he knows the timing. He's worked with Apatow forever, and I think he was specifically installed here to make this movie successful, and I think he does. I think he does. I don't think that anything sits too long. I don't think I, I think the jokes land and then you move. Uh, it, it's just a, the right beats, the right timing. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not an editor. I don't edit things. I would need to edit things wrong for years before I had any kind of insight to that process. But I guess we can get to the writer. The writer is Jason Siegel. And uh, I first noticed Jason Siegel on How I Met Your Mother. I didn't really catch Freaks and Geeks when it was on. I was a little young for that, I think. I was a little bit younger than Jason Siegel. Not too much. I still am, actually. Funny how that works. But he was 19 in Freaks and Geeks. So I first noticed him on How I Met Your Mother, and this was his writing debut. He went on to write more from here. Obviously, he went on to write The Muppets, which I liked, uh, The Five-Year Engagement, and Sex Tape, which I haven't seen, and a show on, uh, I believe, AMC called Dispatches from Elsewhere. And I haven't seen it, but the Blu-ray is coming in today. Two days when the Blu-ray arrives. So I, I couldn't stream it. So I could only buy it online or buy it in physical, and I chose physical. That, that's where I'm at with that. Obviously, he's an actor. He's worked in a ton of stuff. I also kind of secondary noticed him, or, or like third noticed him, because I obviously noticed him after forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, but at the Miami International Film Festival, I saw a movie called Jeff Who Lives at Home which is a Duplass Brothers movie, also starring Ed Helms and, um, oh, what's her name? What's her name? She's so good. I can't think of her name. Uh, 
Oh, Judy Greer's in it. And Susan Sarandon is where I was going for that. I was going for Susan Sarandon. And it was a nice movie. It was a nice movie. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It felt very Siegel. His part felt very Jason Siegel. He also plays David Foster Wallace in the movie End of Tour. And I haven't, haven't seen it, but I also haven't read Infinite Jest yet. I have it. And I popped it open and I read like a ch chapter or something and it was, I wasn't fucking ready. I was not ready for it, but he's made that kind of, uh, switch into more dramas. Uh, so he's in a movie coming out now called my friend something. Jeez. I'm the worst at this. Our friend he's, he's in a, a movie called our friend, right? And, uh, the end of tour. Oh, he was in this is 40. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he was in Undeclared too. I'm super dumb. I thought I had seen Undeclared. Uh, apparently I have not. He was in Slackers. I thought I saw Slackers too. I may just not be paying attention, but he was in SLC Punk, which is really cool. And Dead Man on Campus. And he was the watermelon guy in Can't Hardly Wait. I love Can't Hardly Wait. I need to, I need to rewatch that. Now that you've gone with me on this journey of Jason Siegel's acting credits, uh, let's keep talking about him. He's, he's particularly suited for playing the the, the, the big lovable goofy guy. He's, um, he's six foot four. So I'm actually a little taller than him. Eh, fuck you, Jason. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I love you, Jason, but he's broad, so to speak, big, broad shoulders. And, uh, you know, he's kind of grown less fond of the stereotype as he's gotten older. That's why he, uh, he, he's a really interesting guy. And I don't mean that in a fake, like stupid way. He possessed or possesses, I don't know yet, you know, uh, maybe things have changed because, you know, it's he's a person and people change. But he possessed, at least, something that, I don't I don't want to call it innocence, but almost something kind of adjacent to it, uh, something that opposes cynicism, right? He definitely has a, a quick smile, but, you know, always kind of like, like the, the hurt and the pain in his eyes kind of thing. You know, I, I, he is wanting to explore himself you know he, he brings himself he brings his energy his energy is like this this big dude and and you know kind of a bit of a physical comedy but he's trying to explore himself in in this and i'm not putting words in his mouth um right this was a very personal movie for him it's a it's an amalgam a remix and embellishment of you know some of his real life experiences he uh he did get into a big breakup and go to hawaii a year before this movie came out and that's when he wrote the script. He, uh, he also got broken up while naked. He got broken up with while naked. Uh, there's, there's a really fun fact where, um, the, the, the guy that plays Rachel's ex boyfriend in the movie was legitimately in Hawaii, a guy whose girlfriend Jason was hitting on and who wanted to like beat him up. This is like the best coincidence, but this is how, and I, I hate to use the word authentic because authentic has become fake through usage. Um, like literally and figuratively. Um, but this is the tier of personal that this movie is. And he was, he didn't create the Dracula musical for the movie. He was writing the Dracula musical thinking it was going to be a thing. And he actually told Jenna. <laughs> He, he, he played some of the songs for Judd Apatow and Judd is like, you cannot show this to anybody. Do not show this anywhere 
because people will think that you are, you've lost it. And he thought it was going to jumpstart his career. He thought it was going to be his like big breakout thing. It was not, it was not Jason. However, they were trying to figure out an original movie to an original movie, an original ending to the movie. And they were like spitballing stuff because like the, Oh, I miss you. Like kind of ending is, is not for this. Right. Like he starts out the movie with his dick out and that is just to like get you completely knocked off of the, the rails. That is a normal rom-com. That is not a thing that you see in a rom-com in the first real scene of two people talking. You don't see somebody's dick that happens. And there's a lot to that scene. Like he plays that scene straight because it's funny that he's naked and it's, it's, there's a lot, it's really great, but this is kind of the thought process here. So they wanted something fucking boosted. And Jason's like, well, just do the Dracula musical. Cause that's funny, right? That's how his character says, Oh, when, when somebody told me it was a comedy, it really broke it wide open. That's what happened. Like, that's actually what happened. They rewrote the Dracula, the, the movie, or they, they wrote the Dracula musical into the rest of the movie. So when he says somebody told me it was a comedy, he means Judd Apatow was like, that's funny. That's actually what happened. This is the movie. The movie is him in a lot of ways. It is not, it's an expression of him. It is not him. It is an expression of him in a lot of ways. It is still a movie. It is still fictional, but it is so reinforced with truth. So he did a Hollywood foreign press interview. And the interviewer, who's a lovely interviewer, uh, I forget her name, unfortunately. She asked him, what is art to you? And he said, his response was, and I quote, for me right now, I'll maybe just phrase it as a mission statement, which is, I would like to make things for an audience where when I present them, I'm able to say, this is me. End quote. That is such a. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it is such a powerful message. I think for an artist, you know, on, on, on the, the, the Dracula musical, he says, quote, I think that's why it works is because I really like the idea that if you expose who you are, if you put your inside parts outside, it will be met with understanding, right? So he's not trying to hold back. He's really trying to, trying to make himself vulnerable. And in this movie, he calls being naked while getting broken up with literally vulnerable, which is, you know, what he says, like, that's the best I could do when I was 24. Cause he was 24 when he wrote this movie. So it's very, I think it's very mature for a 24 year old. When I was 24, I was so fucking dumb. I couldn't, well, I still can't, but I definitely could not have at the time approached this level of sophistication. So there's a lot going on there. And uh, I think I'm going to take a break. I think I'm going to take a little bit of a break because this is a, turning out to be a long fucking episode. I talk too much. And my voice is uh, not working out for me right now. So I'll come back in a minute.
All right, so there's a lot to talk about in the movie itself. I've talked about the movie or about the, the production of the movie. I haven't really talked about the movie just yet. I usually go with an outline of the characters. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. It will talk about the plot in the outline of the characters, and then I will talk more about what happens in the movie afterwards. This is very organic the way I'm doing this right now. It is, it feels very natural. <laughs> oh boy. Um, you know, so obviously we have our, our male lead, Jason Siegel plays Peter Brecher, a, an LA musician who does the music for a show called Crime Scene, which is, you know, pretty straight up a CSI Miami kind of ripoff or CSI ripoff, right? He's definitely set up to be a lovable, lovable and dedicated slob. And it's the little white lies right at the beginning when he gets the phone call from Sarah. You know, he's like, uh, yeah, what are you eating? Salad, you know, working. Yeah, it, it, it sets up his real, I guess, glaring failure, which is uh, maturity or lack thereof, his immaturity. You know, and, and his lovableness, his, his charm, it really covers up his issues and, and recontextualizing this. If you see it as his perspective, his accounting, he covers up his issues. These, the, the movie's told mostly through his POV and all his, his flashbacks are these rose colored glasses of his relationship with Sarah that are impossibly positive and, and wonderful. And, uh, you know, when he meets Rachel, she kind of starts to knock loose the the bad parts of Sarah. And, you know, she also starts to kind of, uh, she kickstarts a little bit of a, a revelation that, you know, perhaps he can be happy pursuing what he wants. Perhaps he was still uh, working the music at crime scene just to be close to her. Her being Sarah. You know, and, and he characterizes... Dracula as being, as being close to a woman and then smothering them, or and, and ultimately he's just a guy that wants to be loved. So the the, the Dracula, right, the Dracula, um, which uh, Jesse Thorne did an interview with Jason Siegel, and he did this whole bit on on he doesn't like Draculas, and Jason Siegel doesn't get it, and it's very funny because Jesse Thorne just plays it straight all the way through. He's like, yeah, he's a Dracula, yeah, you know, what's a guy with fangs? It's great. Uh, so you can check that out. That was on NPR. Uh, not too long ago, I think last year. So that's Peter in a nutshell. He's really goofy, you know, tall, lovable, kind of huggable kind of guy, like crisscross. Sarah Marshall, titular Sarah Marshall, is played by the effervescent Kristen Bell, the lovely Kristen Bell. I love Kristen Bell so, so much as an actor. I think she's got excellent, excellent, excellent timing and She's very emotive and expressive. Even in the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, she's kind of running bits, especially with uh, Russell Brand, who's definitely his own brand, uh, pun intended, of uh, person, and, and we'll get to him. Uh, but Kristen Bell does this very perfect, bitchy TV type. So she starts out that way, and when she ends up opening up to Peter towards the end of the movie... It feels very real, feels very natural because she didn't start out being an authentic, uh, again, that word that I hate, 
person, but instead a more reserved actor TV personality. And that comes into play, actually. It's set up when her show gets canceled and Peter's like, how do you feel? And she's like, no, it's great. I really want to go into movies. And he's like, you know, shut the fuck up. How do you really feel? So it's set up that she puts on a front, a facade. She has that to protect herself. So when it comes down, you know, she starts out with Rachel very fake, and then she has a, a, a really honest conversation with Rachel towards the end. It's, it's a whole thing. She seems very one-dimensional. And I think that that's where, you know, some of the, the misogyny claims, and I, I say misogyny like that, not because it's, not because it can't happen, because it does happen all the time, but because I don't think it's appropriate in this uh, specific instant. She seems very one-dimensional at first, and, and I think a lot of people stop looking, like, right then and there. They're like, ugh, oh, I get it. I get the meme. You know, but the whole thing is that the the relationship doesn't unravel. It was already unraveled, right? However, we learn throughout the course of the movie more of what the reality was. It wasn't Peter's very one-sided view. And it also necessarily wasn't her view, one-sided view, right? It, it's more complex than that. And even she has that flashback. Um, but her character has a lot of depth because, well, they both do because they both go on, on, on journeys and Sarah Marshall is the only other character that for the most part we get scenes with, uh, on their own. Who's the main character. We really don't see Rachel alone except towards the end. We don't see all this alone very much unless somebody's walking up to him, you know, that kind of thing. So Sarah Marshall is a main character in this movie very much, aside from being in the title, right? Her performance, her arc is very important in people learning about themselves. Really, you know, she, uh, she made a choice to cheat on Peter because she was unsatisfied because she felt that she was being his mom, she was taking care of him. And I'm saying this maybe feels a little personal. It's been years. I'm all right, though. I'm surviving. I'm alive. That can happen. That's a real thing that can happen. There is the other side of that coin that he was supportive. You know, I think that... Anyway, let me let me keep going. We'll talk about that. Rachel Jansen is played by the wonderful Mila Kunis, who also has wonderful comedic timing, although... I think that if I had to kind of rank uh, comedy here, I don't think anybody that I've mentioned so far is the funniest person in this movie. But Mila Kunis definitely turns into performance, but she's more of just a normal person than all these other memes. However, she still has her own problems. She's been running away, and she's been afraid to get involved emotionally. Right? She's not scared of danger. She jumps off a cliff straight up. She's like, oh, fuck. You know, she's a, she's kind of rowdy and she's, you know, again, her public customer service facade comes down and, and we get to know her, you know, and, and, and it's Mila Kunis also. Like if you grew up watching that 70s show, you know, for years, like you, you know, Mila Kunis, you understand her, her type, you know, her, her comedic timing, her voice, it's all, you know, something, her looks, eye acting, so to speak. Um, but Rachel has a frankness that is very refreshing, you know, and, and when the wall comes down, she plays very opposite to Sarah Marshall's public facade. She's also 
uh, you know, she's an adrenaline junkie, but she's also independent. She doesn't, she says, I'm not the type of girl to be doted on. And that kind of kicks loose that thing in Peter's head, you know, where it's like, oh, I used to, you know, do everything for, for Sarah, but she never like really supported me or whatever. But here, I think we're going to get to maybe one of the least important characters, but one of the most fun. And that is the character of Aldous Snow, who is played by Russell Brand. Now, Russell Brand is definitely an individual who is uh, polarizing, I guess, but in a, in a more unique way than what that term or phrase might make you think. But the part was originally written for um, kind of a highbrow English author. But Russell Brand somehow made it into this audition. I don't fucking know how. And he was such a rock star. He had such a presence that they're just like, listen, rewrite the fucking movie. Make this guy a rock star. Like, redo it. Re-fucking-write this movie. And they did. And they did. He is a toned-down version of himself in this movie, right? And this comes back to the casting and the, the ease and the, the naturalness of these actors. Russell Brandt is acting, but not so much, you know? He uh, he improvised the rant at the end of, of the song, Do Something, which you can probably hear on YouTube. I'll, I'll find a link. It's definitely on the Blu-ray. And um, you know, it's a uh, it's really the perfect cast because Aldous Snow and simultaneously Russell Brand in, in many cases, I don't know how to say his name, so I'll just say Brand. My Brand. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. You can, in the same breath, say, wow, this guy's an asshole. Holy shit, this guy's cool as hell. Wow, he's a fucking asshole. Like, it can, it's a roller coaster with Aldous and with Russell Brand. And people are complicated, you know, but Aldous does do some really kind of classy good things in the movie while also being a fucking jerk, you know? And I think that's maybe one of the best representations of normal people or, or a rock star, I think that I've seen in a movie, you know, like he helps Gerald do sex to his wife, like and Gerald gets in there and he does it. That's awesome. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing to do, you know? Uh, Liz and Brian Breder are played by Bill Hader and Liz Kikowski. Bill Hader, obviously, is Bill Hader. I've talked about Bill Hader a lot. He does not win this movie. Russell Brand, a thousand percent, wins this movie. And the outtakes, his outtakes are the fucking best. They're so, so good. Um, but uh, Bill Hader, you know, definitely provides, like, he's a straight man. And that's funny because <laughs> he's Bill Hader. <laughs> And Liz Kikowski is also very funny, but very understated uh, comedic performance. She's actually a pretty renowned, I guess, comedy writer, and she's acted in many things as well. So, you know, these are they are these incredibly and aggressively middle class, fancy, clueless uh, couple. And Bill Hader's obviously Peter uh, Brian Breder, I should say, is Peter Breder's stepbrother, but he's also his wingman, and he's really his only friend. You know, so. When we talk about masculinity and male friendships and things like that, this is the example. And I can't help but think that this led into I Love You Man more than a little bit, even though the crew behind I Love You Man is a completely different group of people. It still feels very much in the Apatow verse of the, the dick flick 
so to speak, even though I love you, man, maybe is a little more anti-women than forgetting Sarah Marshall is. Uh, it still has this emotional core of, you know, Paul Rudd just wanting to have a friend. So not about this podcast, not about this movie. But uh, yeah, no, Liz and Brian are are just fantastically like hopeless in terms of being cool. Like the 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 scene where she does the hula and she's like, "I'm doing the luau," and uh, you know they're they're really genuinely supportive of Peter, but they're like saccharine sweet when they're together. And uh, turns out that Brian actually has this like really weird undercurrent, this weird edge that doesn't come out when Liz is around. You know, Liz is like, we're on the same team and that's code for get on my team, which, you know, Hey, maybe that's a little aggressive and in a passive way, but you know, Brian does have a bit of an edge and you see it a couple times interacting with Peter and he kind of lets it out when he's, uh, doing the, the, <laughs> doing the Dracula, um, musical at the end or he plays Van Helsing, you know, it's, it's really great. I, God, I love this fucking movie. So then we have, uh, Chuck, AKA Kunu who is played by Paul Rudd and Paul Rudd still was not Paul Rudd, like capital P capital R in this movie. Paul Rudd was still kind of like, is that the guy from clueless kind of thing? He worked a lot. Don't get me wrong, but he was not the star that he is now. You know, he's just a, a boy from Kansas, you know, really kind of doubling down on reading into this, um, and, and getting into like the trash psychology of it. And any psychology that I practice is trash psychology because I'm not a licensed practitioner. So just keep that in mind, please. But he's kind of the, the bro minded, uh, kind of get your mind offer kind of philosophy, but in a less mm, aggressive way, because Peter already goes through that arc in and of himself, having a bunch of one night stands, but, uh, he's kind of a, a nihilist, kind of like an escapist, isolationist nihilist, you know, like when life give you lemons, say fuck the lemons and bail, you know, he's got, he's got a lot of great lines. Um, you know, when he starts singing surf and safari and it turns into let it snow, but the, the, the words are wrong, you know, that's a, so the weather outside is weather is still a catchphrase that I have with my friends. And also when, when anybody English shows up, it's like, you sound like you're from London, you know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's, he's a really interesting, if specifically one dimensional character, um, Wyoma and Gerald are played by Maria Thayer and Jack McBrayer. And these are both hilarious individuals. And they're also their behind the scenes stuff is, is really fun. And they're kind of examining the sexual, uh, complexities of, of being with somebody for the first time. It was kind of examined in a raunchy detail in the beginning with the one night stand scenarios where, Jason Siegel's having these increasingly bizarre kind of sexual encounters with, with, uh, you know, women and, uh, they're all unfulfilling and he just keeps going and it just keeps getting stranger and stranger. So I guess they kind of represent the, uh, kind of sex positive supportive version of that. And they're, they're newlyweds and they are for religious reasons have not, you know, or at least Gerald has not, I don't know about Wyoming, uh, cause she seems more about it. Just, you know, saying. And, uh, I, I think it's a picture of, of you can be happy in a, in a committed relationship. You know, it's not about the sex and it's not about only just being, uh, 
you know, a, a, a doormat or, or whatever, it, it's definitely a give and a take and it's emotional as well as physical. So that was cool. That was a cool, that was a cool thing in there. Uh, chemo is played by Taylor Wiley and, uh, chemo's this just, you know, massive Hawaiian dude who works at the, the resort. I think he's a cook and he's kind of the, the wisdom and the conscience a bit. And, you know, Brian was too, but, uh, chemo represents not family more so than, than friendship and mentorship. And they, they do a thing where, um, he takes Peter to go slaughter a pig and it's, it's a little bit of a rite of passage. You know, uh, I went one time to go to a slaughterhouse to select a pig and I did not enjoy the experience, but I was also, I don't know, nine, nine years old. Not my thing. Definitely not my thing, but you know, that's a common thing of, of making a man out of you, right? That's a, a common dude thing to happen. So, you know, I think that it's representative of that, but chemo's a good guy. Chemo's a good guy. He's looking out for Peter. So, you know, that was awesome. Dwayne, the bartender, uh, is, uh, played by Devone McDonald. And it, interestingly enough, they said that, that chemo and Dwayne were supposed to kind of swap where chemo was supposed to be, uh, angry with Peter and Dwayne was supposed to be his friend. He's six, seven, by the way, Dwayne is six, seven. Dwayne makes Jason Siegel or makes Peter Breder look like a baby. And it's really nice because Dwayne is like the angry one at Peter all the time, but then he's supportive at the end. Like he comes through and, and they're all there and, you know, Dwayne gives him a big hug kind of thing. It was very, um, visually satisfying, right? He seems held. He seems cradled supportive. And, you know, the, the gentlemen in this movie who are extraneous characters. So outside of Altus, but even including Altus a little bit are kind of mostly there to support the character of Peter in some way or another. There wasn't a whole lot of dialogue outside of talking to Rachel or talking to Sarah. So they're here to kind of, uh, guide him, you know, one way or the other. But then we have the fucking wild card. That is Matthew, the waiter played by Jonah Hill. And he just, it's, it's an improv fest. There's like minutes of outtakes and it's all hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> It's full Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill has his own style of things. And if you listen to uh, Life is Short, the podcast with uh, Justin Long, Jonah Hill was on that. Very funny. Justin Long lived with Jonah Hill for a bit and has some good Jonah Hill stories. Uh, but in general, Jonah Hill is just in, in life, right? An actual funny person, you know? He's like that all the time. Like playing a serious role, is, it's hard for me to to see that. Uh, when I have heard the stories of actual Jonah Hill, even though I think he's a wonderful actor. If you look at Moneyball or Wolf of Wall Street and things like that, I think he's pretty great, but he's also a great comedic actor. And this is an earlier role for him and it kills, it kills. You know, we still say like, oh, fuck me, right? Uh, whenever we get rejected or de denied something, you know, <laughs> he's like, he's going to hand Peter something. He's like, no, 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 thanks. And he's like, oh, fuck me, right? And, uh, it's pretty great. Uh, also his interactions with Aldous are wonderful and they aren't, there are no stakes with Jonah Hill. It's just comedy. And that's nice. That's a nice thing to have. But then there's also that guy, that guy, is Steve Landsberg and Steve Landsberg plays Dr. Rosenbaum. You heard Dr. Rosenbaum in the trailer. Uh, 
and that joke, that great bit with the doctor, it's really good. And there's some good outtakes with Dr. Rosenbaum too. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, I'm going to take another break. The voice is uh, letting me down a little bit. Here we're going to take a brief second to talk about the soundtrack. That's, yep, that's the watch popping off. Uh, do you hear my clothes rustling? I hear my clothes rustling. I also have the cable hitting me on the leg. I need to rethink this a little bit. Give me two seconds. Pardon the noise if there is any. Cool. So I do need to talk about the soundtrack a little bit. And I'm wondering if you can hear the braided cable of my headphones. I can hear it in my headphones. It's bothering me. Everything is bothering me right now. It is difficult to focus. However, I will make the attempt. I'm still making the attempt. Uh, please, the attempt. Okay, let me open this thing. Cool. So like I said, all the original songs were written by Jason Siegel, who's that, that's a wonderful musician, apparently, you know, and there's two infant sorrow songs. There's we've, we've got to do something that comes right at the top of the movie and inside of you. <laughs> and, and they're both very funny. Russell Brand absolutely kills. He took uh, coaching, singing, coaching. But I didn't know that. I thought that, like, I was like, oh, he must have been a rock star before he started comedy because he is so perfect a cast. He is the most perfect cast. So we've got to do something as stupid, catchy, uh, super cheesy. I'll take the soup. Eco Slacktivist, right? That's a, an Eco Slacktivist song, but it's got a strings arrangement. Like, it could have been a real song. <laughs> it's so crazy. And um, inside of you, also probably could have been a real song. Also ridiculous. You know, if you want to put it in the scale, the next level up of ridiculous is Stellar by Incubus, which is super ridiculous when you think about it. Like, it's it's really wild that Stellar became a song, if you think about it. 
well, there's also the, the Dracula songs, and uh, he wrote those. But other than that, on the soundtrack, and there's some songs in the movie that are missing from the soundtrack, like 311's Amber. You know, the, the movie opens up with a Cake song called Love You Madly, which um, actually has singing. It's not just the guy from Cake. I don't know his name. It's not just the guy from Cake talking at you. It's fun. It's a bouncy little song. Um, it's got like a Led Zeppelin chord in there. Um, uh, Good Times, Bad Times, I think is the... the Right? Um, I know that it sounds like nothing to you, but I hear it in my head. I can't think of the words right now, but I hear the song in my head. But that's interesting because the, 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 that song starts out with something... Uh, something's found out what's the means to be a man. Uh, so kind of tangentially in there. You know, there's a, a Frank Black song. You can't break a heart and have it. All right, so, you know, Peter does Dracula's Lament, and then there's A Taste for Love at the end of the movie. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're really good. Uh, there is, okay, my favorite song on the soundtrack, probably, is a cover is a cover. And I'm sorry, I'm having all these mouth liquidity issues and nose, uh, you know, transportation issues. I don't know what that means. There's a band called Aloha Sex Juice. Yes, that is the name of their band. I have refused to look them up. I don't want to know anything about them. I just want to live my life knowing that they exist. And they do a cover of more Than Words, which was an, a song originally by the band Extreme, released in 1990, but they do it with an, a reggae arrangement and in the Hawaiian language. And it slaps. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I guarantee you that you do, you just don't know the name of the song. You've 100% heard More Than Words in your life. It is it is so ubiquitous as as to exist in the very, the, the fabric of the world. They say that something like 90% of $100 bills have cocaine on them or like some bullshit like that. Well, 90% of supermarkets have played more than words in the last week, I promise. And it's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. It's got a, it's got a whole thing. Uh, but the, the reggae arrangement really, um, it, it favors it, I would say. I would say that the reggae arrangement is even better than the original. There's another song that I want to kind of call out. Uh, well, there's two more. Okay, so I'll start at the maybe less interesting one for me, which is there's a band called The Coconuts, and they do a cover of Nothing Compares to You, which is originally a Prince song. Prince wrote the song, and he performed it in one of his, you know, princely bands or whatever it is that he does. Yeah, I don't like Prince's version. I don't necessarily like The Coconuts' version, it's a super popular song, and their arrangement is is super moody. It's like a Rhodes organ with the oscillating speaker kind of thing. So it's got the, the the vibrato of it, and it's got really kind of chill guitar chords over the top of that, and uh, it's pretty intimately vocalized, also in Hawaiian language. But I still think the best version is the Sinead O'Connor version. I I like it so much better, but it's also the one that I originally know the song by, so. I don't know if that kind of bias factors into it as well. There's another song I'll just point out. This is the last song that I'll point out. There's some cool songs on here, but I mean, nothing like crazy, crazy. But there's one from a group called The Bird and the Bee, and it's called Fucking Boyfriend. And um, 
the vocalist sounds like the vocalist from Pamplemousse. It's not. It's it's another woman. Uh, but Greg Kirsten of Gegita, right? And Gegita had a, a 90s song about like being an incel, if if I remember correctly. Uh, Gegita's song, what was it called? Let's look it up. But it's like catchy in the worst way. Whoever you are. You, whoever you are. Something like that. Um, yeah, so Greg of Geggy, Geggy and the eponymous Geggy, not Ta. Ta is actually uh, his brother, I believe. He's actually a mastermind producer, and he makes some catchy, catchy shit. Uh, and it, it all tracks, right? Because this song is like electro glitchy quirky, right? So this is coming up on the hills of, uh, you know, the popularity of, of chiptune and blip, the music festival and things like that. And I think, oh, eight was like a pop in the year for blip music fest. And this is coming up. So we get like freeze pop in, uh, what is it? Fucking rock band and things like that. It, the, the synthy glitch is happening. And this song, it, 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 it kind of slaps. It, it grooves hard in the chorus. It's um, it's syncopation station. Like it's really out there in outer space, and you could just dock up to it and have a blast. You know, there's another Bossa Nova song, and there's some other stuff on there. And hey, you should check it out. Uh, it's mostly on YouTube. You can buy it, obviously, wherever you buy albums. But uh, it really sets uh, a tone, a scene, the reggae vibes, and the Hawaiian uh, language. Really, I, I know that it's filmed in Hawaii, but not all the time is that obvious and. Just putting a little bit of that, you know, culture, that flair into it really sells it. It really sells. This is Hawaii. So I liked it. I enjoyed it. I wanted to comment on it. I don't know that it has any score per se. I think it's just all kind of pop music. I, if there was score, I a thousand percent didn't notice it. And I'm not going to go back and look because I'm already recording this because it's taking me, you know, from here we can kind of go into the movie and, uh, you know what? I think I'm going to. I think I'm just gonna go to the dinner scene. I think we're gonna call it. I think I'm already pretty deep into this podcast right now. <laughs> inside of you, uh, inside of this podcast, we are. Yeah, we're we're in here. So I'll just go to the dinner scene, and I think that again, this is a great movie. I'm not gonna recap the whole thing. It's really wonderful. There's a lot of good performances and a lot of great jokes. If you haven't seen it, go see it. If you haven't seen it in a while. Go watch it again. But I will say that the the plot generally, not always, but generally, moves characters forward constantly. It feels that way, and then they'll cut away to like a joke or whatever, but normally the cutaway is to get to somewhere productive. And you know, I was taking notes, and my notes are significant recapping of the movie. I there's other movies where I've done this. Uh, if you recall, I made American Graffiti two episodes. And the second episode was essentially just plot recap. Why, you ask? One, because I love the movie. But two is because the plot itself is what motivated character change and all that. And you kind of have to hit on those beats to get there. So, I mean, I hit on some of that already. I think I'm going to assume that you got it. And I'm just going to go on to the dinner scene. Because... The concept of the scenes moving the characters forward, I feel, is good screenwriting, capital G, capital S, 
However, the dinner scene is like a really, really good example of that in a tidy package. And uh, roughly it starts with Peter kind of, uh, they run into each other in line for the dinner. And Peter flippantly invites uh, Peter and Rachel, who are, you know, together at this point, flippantly kind of invites uh, Sarah and Aldous to have dinner with them, and Sarah accepts. And what we're seeing here is that uh, Sarah's disposition towards Aldous is kind of turning. Her disposition towards Peter is kind of turning. And she wants that connection that she had with Peter that she's not getting with Aldous. She's getting a lot of sex. But that's kind of about it. And just before this, uh, you know, Sarah and Aldous had had a little bit of a, an altercation. Her, her show was canceled. They had a little bit of a thing with a shirt that she bought him. And he's salty because he's wearing the shirt even though he doesn't want to. She's salty because she knows that he's wearing the shirt that he doesn't want to wear. And, you know, Peter wasn't like that, wouldn't behave like that, so on and so forth. And her show's canceled. So already she's reeling because she's, an, a, a, you know, honestly playing an actress on TV, you know, and, and being an actor is really, really tough. Jason Siegel himself wrote this after being out of work for like two years or three years or something. He was out of work for a bit as he was writing this. So being an actor is challenging in, in those ways. And it's challenging about your self-esteem because it's really you like I, the, be, being an actor is one of the few places where it's fine to say, yeah, I don't think you're right for this because I don't like your face. You can't change your face. It is you. You're too tall. You're too blah. You're too blonde. You're too dark haired. There are so many aspects about a person that factor into their acting career. It's, I get it, right? I get it. So she's all out of sorts. She accepts on behalf of all this in her. They sit down and Rachel is kind of on Sarah's side and, and trying to engage her and make her feel better and help her out you know, socially. All this is salty, Peter's salty, and they're not really talking too much. And when, you know, when the opportunity comes to slam her on like a bad movie that she made, which Rachel walks into unknowingly, she doesn't know they do. So they do. So like Peter doesn't feel the need to protect Sarah's feelings anymore. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I'd say he's medium motivated to hurt them out of spite a little bit. And, uh, not a lot. He, I don't think he's a terribly spiteful person, but a bit. And that's when shit starts to go sideways. You know, Sarah's just getting really, really, uh, salty. She's feeling cornered, you know, I don't know what's up with my monitor. Nothing's up with my monitor. Okay. That's cool. My monitor just turned like straight black for no reason. That's fun. And they're all drinking and all this has like a, a tomato, ju tomato juice, right? But Jonah Hill ends up bringing him like, or, or he spills it as cranberry juice. He spills it on his shirt and he's like, oh, fuck this shirt a bit. And that, that makes things worse. Then Jonah Hill brings Matthew, the waiter, I should say. Matthew, the waiter brings Aldous a cocktail of his concoction. And this is like where my, cause he, Aldous is like, I don't care what you bring me just bring me something. But this is where my recollection, uh, really fails me. I saw this movie in theaters and I was, and I have been for so many years, 99% certain that all this was, uh, a recovering alcoholic or, or recovering addict, uh, the character. And I think, you know, Russell Brand as well. 
and um the fact that he's so uh i guess flustered or distracted or whatever with the situation with sarah he doesn't realize that he starts drinking an alcoholic cocktail because that's what matthew the waiter brought him to try to impress him and uh <laughs> matthew the waiter and um He's, he gets drunk and they're, they're ordering more bottles of wine and they all get drunk and they're all drunk and they're all kind of being mean. And Sarah turns on Rachel and it, it becomes kind of like, you know, aggressive, like cat fighty a little bit between them, you know, because of reasons, because she's jealous that she has Peter and, and Sarah's feeling bad about not having Peter and all this is being a dick. And then Rachel is like, not about that bullshit. Like she starts rubbing in Sarah's face that she's with her ex-boyfriend and doing like some, you know, pretty freaky shit at the table. And all this is like, this is all fucking stupid. Cause he sees it for what it is. Um, but he's like a, a bit removed from it. And this is like a big fulcrum, a big turning point in the plot. And this is where Sarah realizes fully accepts that she's trying to make Peter jealous that she is not over Peter, that she made a mistake potentially. Right. I'm not going to, editorialize that for her, qualify it. You know, she did what she did, but she also was doing it for a year. So mistakes were made perhaps, or just, you know, not nice things were made or done. And this is also a time where Rachel and Peter are kind of trying to, you know, outdo Sarah and make her jealous or Sarah and all this. But then Rachel kind of brings the focus, uh, back to them too, from, you know, cause Peter's kind of focused on what they're doing. Cause they're, they're next door to each other at this point. This is the, the, the fulcrum by which the, the movie swings around where Peter starts to be okay with himself and with his trajectory going forward with his path. And Sarah starts to regret it, right? Even though she already made the case, I believe at this point that, uh, actually, no, uh, I don't think she had made the case. No. Okay. So there's still more shit to happen. But, uh, you know, Sarah eventually makes the case that Peter was immature and she was tired of taking care of him. There, there's a lot. There's a lot. But Sarah has her full arc kind of after this. I think she was really lonely and uh, she wasn't getting the engagement that she got from Peter, from Aldous. And that's why, you know, I guess she was sleeping with Aldous because she didn't, she felt that it was easy but she stayed with Peter because he was supportive of her. So yeah, there's a lot of going on in just this one scene, right? Everybody has kind of uh, status and motivation coming in and they all change a bit. All this breaks up with Sarah, like that night, like it's a whole thing. You know, it's, it's just funny how there's this, uh, you know, my dinner with Andre or, or Tarantino talky talk talk scene. And it turns into, it leads into a competitive sex scene. It, it's still a raunchy comedy, but there's a lot of, uh, character driven plot motivations and emotional states and stakes in it. And I think that's what makes the movie good. Like to stand the test of time. Good. I don't think it's the greatest movie in the world. No, but I like it. I like it a lot. A lot of good jokes, a lot of good stuff. And it, it, it seems to hold up when I use my, my very smooth and stupid brain to kind of think about it, right? To think about a movie. I'm not, I don't dislike analyzing movies. I don't dislike 
watching movies. I don't turn off. I, I actually, I turn down for what? I, I turn up. I get fucking turned. And I, I really like to think about movies a lot. I like to think about why is that character standing there? Why did they do this? Why is this guy here? All these things. And I think one of the most beautiful things is when all of these machinations, machinations, I still don't know how to say that. I still haven't looked it up. When they, they work out, when they resolve to become something beautiful, it's like a tapestry almost. It's like a wonderful tapestry. This is a castle and we have many tapestries. So that's where I'm at with this. That's where I'm at with this movie. I like looking at it now and seeing all of this here. I like seeing how the threads get weaved. There's plenty of threads. They all got woven. So, you know, in the end, to wrap it up, to sum it up, you know, this is a bit of a 500 Days of Summer, which I also like, and I like those maybe two equally because they both realize, they both acknowledge that the one perspective isn't necessarily the right one, you know? Like, Tom in 500 Days of Summer sucks. She straight told him, I'm not looking for a boyfriend, and he's like, I'm gonna make you my girlfriend. And guess what happens? She broke up with you, dude. In this movie, Peter's really romanticizing his relationship with Sarah. Like, in a lot of ways. And that's not uncommon. But he, he, he finally realizes that it wasn't all that great afterwards, after all. And, you know, she was like, oh my god, my relationship is trash. But then she realizes it wasn't all trash. And, you know, it, there's this um, acknowledgement, I think, of the other perspective or the other side or the reality it, you know if you can put it that way because it's it's difficult in an objective way to say what the reality of the situation is but it was really unexpected for a romantic comedy for it to go this way you know the difference between them i think ultimately is that like peter doesn't unilaterally miss their relationship right she ends up missing it too but Peter is the one that is unilaterally having a good time in Hawaii. Somehow his being there like ruined her vacation or something, you know? And I think that it also points out the difference between having sex with somebody and being in a relationship with somebody. I think there's a lot of emotional commitment there, not just physical, emotional. And I think that that's a huge part of it. I don't know if I talked about it, but I think that there's a physical and emotional aspect to relationships, romantic relationships. That is important. And it's not necessarily a balance sheet. And I don't know that, you know, I, I think objectively you can be like, yeah, Sarah sucks. She's cheated on Peter for a year. But her point of view is valid. She was taking care of Peter. He was not mature. He was not ready and all those things. Just there's different ways that you can handle that. And she, you know, told him about, I'm going to do some movie relationship canceling or uh, counsel, canceling. Whoops. Nope. Counseling. She told Peter that she was tired of being his mom, that she was tired of taking care of him. But she didn't tell Peter that at the time she was doing things. She was making efforts, but I don't know that she successfully communicated it. Right. That's all part of it. Cause he thought that she was just helping and, and being supportive of him. Probably like, Oh, that's great. Thank you. You know, it's a nice thing to do. He's not understanding that there's a greater message behind this. You know, and sometimes it takes these events, these breakups for you to learn. I don't know that I've learned, but I'm, I'm trying, you know, 
what is what is this movie about? I think it's about being okay with yourself. I think it's about, I guess, being your honest self, but also being able to grow and and being able to be better. I think it's about taking loss and hardship and, and coming back from it. I think it's about being open to possibilities. You know, I, I think it is acknowledging fully that there is you know, more than one facet of every relationship. There's, there's a lot to it. It is complex. The dinner scene had four people kind of going at once and they're all bouncing off each other in different ways and, and changing based on how they interact. It can be messy. It can be complicated and mistakes can be made. And I think that while we may vilify people, you know, people assuming that Sarah Marshall is the villain of the piece, um, arch villain, twi mustache twiddling per se, she's not. Um, I, I don't think that people are always the villain that we paint them out to be in our heads. You know, people are complicated. It, 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 they are multifaceted in and of themselves. So I don't know that you can say that guy's ob objectively bad. I mean, un unless it's like, you know, genocide or something. I think then there's some objectivity there, but I'm talking about in relationships in general. There's um there's latitude there. There's an amount of, of understanding and uh, empathy that one can use to really analyze different facets of the relationship. But there is one um there's one last thing that I want to bring up, I think. Maybe two maybe maybe a couple things. But one of the extra features was a table read of uh, Peter singing Dracula's Lament for the first time. And a, a table read, for those who don't know, it's it's a big, big table, usually a, a U or a square table. I'm talking about big. I'm talking about like the cast with all the speaking roles or most of the main cast with speaking roles. And then you'll have a couple of people reading like any incidental extras that have speaking roles. And they usually record these. Um... And the actors are, they're not in costume, but they are at least a little bit, you know, trying to play the part, almost like a radio drama. And Peter is, or Jason Siegel is sitting right in between Mila Kunis and Kristen Bell, as they're like the three main leads. So they get to the part where they're in the bar and she tells the band that Peter's going to play a song. And Jason Siegel reaches behind him and he pulls up like a 61 key, like, I don't know, Korg keyboard, you know, battery powered or whatever. And they have to clear the space on the table. There's like waters and things. And it's a whole preparation to actually play the song. He's actually going to sing the song Dracula's Lament. And, um, the Dracula voice, he has a fucking hilarious Dracula voice. He starts singing it. And, and he's stringing in the, the Dracula. He's doing, he's going a hundred percent. He's doing the, the performance, you know, and everybody's laughing because they're, they're hearing it. They're hearing it for the first time. And that laughter was infectious. Poor choice of words. But the, <laughs> I started laughing because other people were laughing. I've heard the song like five times, but seeing other people react to it uh, in their moment really moved me I don't know connected with me per se and why did I bring that up um I, I I think I think in this um this specific instance of a 
a parasocial, pseudo-participatory circle jerk of social interaction where I'm imagining that I myself is in the same table read. And maybe I'm one of the actors or one of the writers or whatever, or maybe I'm just the guy holding the camera or maybe I'm the sound guy. But I, in my mind, I was there. I was in the, the, the room with the people laughing around me and I was laughing. And it reminded me of watching movies in, in a theater. I mean, it's not, I had, I had a, 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 an actual like reaction to it, but I don't know that it's worth uh, anyone's life or anyone getting sick to go watch a movie. I, I, I would just love to get past this bullshit ass pandemic thing so that, so that we, it can be safe so that we can do things like this again. I do hope that Wall Street Bets saved AMC. I really do because I, I like theaters. I want to keep going to them. I just don't want anybody to get sick or anything because of it. But aside from that, even I think there's a legacy that forgetting Sarah Marshall has created not a huge rock into the pond, but there are ripples. So it is very much an Apatow movie, but it's also very much a Jason Siegel movie and Apatow stared into forgetting Sarah Marshall. But I think forgetting Sarah Marshall stared into Apatow. I think they were both different after this, uh, not collision, but this interaction, the earnestness of this movie, this movie being just a hundred percent, Jason Siegel being a hundred percent like this is me. I think it rubbed off on, on movies that came after it and productions, uh, that came after it. And I think that Jason Siegel kind of picked up on the movie comedy a little more also because of his experience here, you know, so movies that came after this heavily featured catchphrases. If you can dig it, I love you, man, being one of them that is riddled with catchphrases also with Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel. And essentially Paul Rudd's legacy was cemented here as, as Chuck, right? Capital P capital L R Paul Rudd. Uh, you know, he, um, he went to being like role models. I love you, man. And wanderlust like right after this pretty much. And, Role models had the whole kiss um, gimmick, so to speak. And it was about like being awesome with kids in need. And it was pretty earnest and emotional stuff. You know, I love you, man, obviously is basically the bro down that Peter Bretter would likely need when he went to get married because Peter Bretter, not huge on, on male friends, as we see from this movie, more of a sensitive type, which Paul Rudd's character, whose name is Pete in I love you, man is distinctly that sensitive type character. And, you know, Jason Siegel is playing cool Sydney, right? So they kind of swap roles a little bit. And, and there's definitely a lot to unpack in I Love You, Man. But that's another thing. There's some essays that you can read that are pretty um, in-depth and maybe point a few things out. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe Paul Rudd is the key to all of this. <laughs> maybe I've been talking shit for however long at this point. Maybe Paul Rudd is actually the key to this. Maybe Paul Rudd is the secret center of the cinema galaxy. I mean, we know bacon numbers, right? But is there red numbers? I, I, I should work on that. I have, I have the information. I can do that. I can work on that. I should, that should be my next project. Calculate a red number. But yeah, uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. 
you know, so be safe, wear a mask, stay at home if you can, you know, support your small businesses safely if you can. Uh, it, it's hard for a lot of people. Black lives still matter. They still do. Yep. I have to say it. I have to say it, but that's still a thing. And uh, I am Mark D, and I am you.